continuing in our Sunday night series in the Psalms of Ascent, and this is the third one, Psalm 122, and I'm going to read along. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this psalm, the opportunity to look at it, to glean from its teachings and to consider what was going on in the heart of David as he wrote it, to consider Jerusalem, to consider your church, your kingdom. Lord, please guide us this evening. Please guide me as I proclaim your word. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you, I know, have uh, different testimonies, and everyone's uh, testimony of faith is unique, and some of us have um, grown up in church, and uh, most of our life, all we've known is church, and uh, things of the church, and church culture, and for other, others of us, um, like myself, um, came to faith later in life, and there was a, a contrast. Um, but I wonder, you know, even for those who grew up in church or for those who um, had what some would call the Damascus Road <laughs> conversion experience, do you remember those times when you first became a believer, and, and, and church was exciting. It was, it was all you wanted to do. It was a thrill. It was, uh, it was the main thing in your life. And, and I know uh, for me, uh, you know, becoming a believer in my late 20s, it, that was the case. That was the, and, and for many people that have a similar testimony as I do of um, a drastic conversion experience, uh, that's their same testimony that church was everything. It was, it was wonderful. It was glorious. All they wanted to do was learn. That's, that's all I wanted to do when I, I first became a believer is, is just to go to church to serve and to um, just read my Bible and pray. And, and for those of you who, you know, maybe you grew up in church and, and maybe that, you know, you weren't converted until later on in, in your teenage years or early 20s, or maybe you can't even pinpoint the exact 
uh, year or, or time because church is all you know, but you may have a time in your life where uh, church became real like that. It became thrilling. It became an excitement. And this is, in a sense, the attitude of the psalmist. This is a, a says that it's a psalm of David, and, and many scholars would believe that that's true. They take it at face value. We should take that superscription at face value, that this is a psalm of David. Some would disagree, but I take it at face value that this is a psalm of David, and, and certainly um, David is expressing his joy, his hope, over coming to the house of God, coming to into Jerusalem, coming to worship at the temple. His thrill, this is his, everything in his life is all about God, to worship. And, and you know, as we grow as believers, um, oftentimes this can happen. We get involved in uh, serving and church culture and um, just the things that happen in our church. And, and we can uh, lose sight of that thrill and that hope and that joy and the, of coming to church, of worshiping God. And I, I think back, you know, sometimes uh, I think back to those early days when I, I was converted and, and I really wasn't doing much in church. I was just I was just sitting on a pew, just learning, trying to soak it in as much as I could and learn as much as I could about God. It, just, it, was, it was brand new. It was exciting. It was thrilling. Um, but then, you know, we get involved in our duties and our serving, and, and it becomes familiar. And, you know, as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And then we see the flaws of the church and we, we start to criticize little things, and, and church loses that excitement, that thrill, that joy. But this psalm starts off. This psalm starts off with that joy as David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Just at the thought of the invitation to get away, to go somewhere else. And, and you know, I remember uh, not too long ago, um, you know, in, in a couple years ago, when, in the beginning of COVID, when all the craziness hit in this world, and, and just not, not just over COVID, but the political things. And, and I remember going to church when, when churches opened back up, and, and uh, oftentimes you would hear people say, they would say, I'm just glad to be in a place where people think straight. <laughs> and it's not crazy. Like, I'm just glad to be here where it's somewhat normal. And, and we know church and the Christian life isn't normal because we are different. We are called out of the world. We think differently. We think rightly. We think according to what is true, what is right. And in, in our view, in our mindset, we, we are somewhat normal what, or, or what normal should be. But that's what, not what normal is for the rest of the world. And church should be a refuge. 
It should be a sanctuary. It should be that place where we can just relax, we can rest, we can interact with one another, we can encourage one another. And everybody is somewhat on the same flow of thought. It's where things are right, where things are true. This is the, the hope in David's thought, in his mind as he's given that invitation that he, uh, the others come to him and say, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go worship. Let us go on this pilgrimage. Let us go to the feast. As that's what the Psalms of Ascents were for, to um, sing on the way to go to the feast, the three feasts in the year, to travel, to go to the city, the place that God had set aside and decreed for worship. And it's interesting, as we, we come to this third psalm, they, they were not written in this order, but they were arranged in this order. And uh, one, of the, one of the professors in, in, in my school, a Hebrew and Old Testament scholar, Dr. William Barak, he said this concerning these first few psalms. He said, Psalm 120 depicts a pilgrim living in a hostile world of unbelievers facing trouble and problems. Then Psalm 121 explains that divine help produces a pilgrim's peace of mind in such a world. Trusting God's power brings about a solution to the pilgrim's trouble. And then Psalm 122 speaks of the triumph of arriving at Jerusalem and standing within its walls, a, a city under God's protective blessing. Uh, a city where things should be right, things should be normal, um, things should be uh, according to God's word. That wasn't always the case, but that was the hope, that was the intention, that was the design that the Israelites would gather to this one place where the temple was, where the in David's time, the tabernacle was, the ark was, the center of all the Hebrews' worship, their heritage. Another commentator, he writes this, he says, concerning there's these first few psalms of ascent, he says um, that Psalm 120 notes the trials of an expatriate, someone living outside of Israel. And in Psalm 121, the hazards of travel, which are now eclipsed by the joy which had first drawn the pilgrims on their journey here in 122, Psalm 122. And in this Psalm of Ascents, we see three heartfelt expressions from David concerning this place of worship at Jerusalem, the city, the temple, which he is going to. Three heartfelt expressions as he's given this invitation, as he comes to the city, as he comes to worship. Three expressions from the psalmist. We, first, we see the psalmist's joy in verses 1 to 2. The psalmist's joy. And he says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
We see his joy immediately. It, it, throughout the whole psalm is joy, is hope, is excitement, enthusiasm over worship. But it begins right from the get-go, right from verse 1 and 2. And his joy is, first and foremost, over the prospect of worship. And, and yes, he, he could, just as we can, worship anywhere. And, and David, many of his psalms are, are written in, in such a way as if we could picture uh, either David in his youth as a shepherd boy out in the field amongst the flocks, or David on the run from Saul or Absalom, or David um, going to and from battle. But whatever the case may be, we picture uh, some of the Psalms of David as he's out by himself, perhaps, and just contemplating God and what God is doing in his life, what he has done, who God is, and composing his thoughts in praise to God. And here he composes his thoughts concerning going up to the house of God over the prospect of worship. And we see here in verse 1 that it wasn't just him because he, he says, I was glad when they said to me, not, not just one person, but they, several people, let us go to the house of the Lord. It, it wasn't just him that wanted to go, but others wanted to go with him and they came to him and invited him and certainly he wanted to go. And, and they probably went to him because David, as the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. Perhaps they, they went to, to him because they wanted to go, and David, being the, the godly man, the, the leader, um, they wanted to get him too. And, and maybe even to have him lead them into worship. And, and, and they wanted him to go with them. They wanted to go with him. So th this wasn't just his joy, but it's the joy of others. It, it, it was in their heart. This is what we're, we're commanded in, in Hebrews chapter 10. In, in this verse, certainly you, you heard this you know, a lot during the, the shutdowns of churches and why we need to um, obey God rather than man and gather. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 to 25, it says... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See the day drawing near. Talking about the, the last day, the end days, the day of the Lord. Or if not the day of the Lord, the day when he calls us home to himself. Or whatever the case may be, there is a day when we will see the Lord in all his glory. And until that day, we are to encourage one another. We are to stir one another up to love and good works. We are to gather as the people of God. And as we gather, wherever that may be, whether that's in a home or in a nice building like we have, or it's in a field, or perhaps it's in a hiding place in the woods as some of our persecuted brothers and sisters have to gather. Whatever place we gather in is a special place. 
It's a, in a sense, a sacred place. And, and that's, you know, there's, there's this term called uh, sacred space that I've heard um, several times. And it's, it's one of those terms that's kind of iffy. You hear it and not sure about it. You know, it, it has kind of um, these uh, Catholic or liturgical undertones. But there is a sense where when the people of God gather, it is a sacred space, not because of the space itself, but because of, of who we are and who God has made us. It's because of his spirit dwelling within us that when we gather, it is, a, in a sense, a sacred space, wherever that may be, if it's in the woods or in a prison cell, that God is with us and we are together. And we come together to worship the God who has indwelt us. And that's, that's a sacred thing. And as this psalm is, it, it isn't about personal worship. It isn't about private worship. This is about corporate worship. It's about coming together as one and, and coming to the place where God has called uh, the people to worship him, at least in the Old Testament setting. Corporate worship is, in a sense, a community project. That it's to be done together. And we, when we come together, we bring um, all our strengths and weaknesses, all our trials and challenges, all our blessings. But most importantly, we bring our spiritual gifts. And the church doesn't uh, rise or fall on one person. It's, it's together. We find our strength in one another and together as we're all exercising our spiritual gifts to build up the body. I like what Steve Lawson says in his commentary on the Psalms of, about this Psalm. He writes this. He says, Eager joy should always fill the hearts of God's people as they make their way into God's house. In the company of like-minded worshipers, their hungry souls are satisfied as they sit under the exposition of Scripture. Word-inspired worship is never a drudgery, but a delight. Never a burden, but a blessing. And that should be the truth of our worship. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not always the truth. Um, we, we come to church and we come to worship um, with baggage. We come with our sins. We come with our fears and our anxieties and our worries over what happened last week and what's going to happen this next week and, and relationship issues and um, the tasks that we have to complete. And more often than not, we sit in, in church and we sit under preaching and singing and we're thinking about um, what we're going to have for lunch and where we're going to go. <laughs> And what we have to do later on that day and, and uh, it, whether or not we're serving and, and uh, you know, I have this bag to give to this other person. This other person has a gift for me and we have to exchange something and our hearts and our minds are wayward and they drift. And sometimes, you know, the preaching is not what we um, hoped it would be and you know, often the case is when I preach, it's, I 
get done, and it's not what I hoped it would be. <laughs> I, I wanted much more, but it is what it is, and I, I remember um, several times, several times sitting under great preachers, well-known preachers, preachers who, if I named them, you would know because of their books and their great sermons, and, and I would be sitting under them and, and just listening to them, and I, I would know in my heart, this is a good sermon. But I'm not all there. My, either it's in my heart or my mind. I didn't get enough sleep. I'm not focused. It's not the preacher's fault. It's my fault. I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not prepared. My, my heart wasn't glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so I have to take responsibility for that myself. And even if the preaching is bad, even if the music is bad, um, then I have to glean whatever I can from that because, you know, God has ordained us to gather and he has decreed all that comes to pass and, and we all fail in many ways and sometimes things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but we come together to encourage one another, to be encouraged, and so we glean as much as we can from this time together. Whether that's an interaction with one another or the preaching of God's word or the giving or the singing or the prayers. And sometimes we come away from worship and it, you know, it, it may have not been the sermon that impacted us. I remember several times it was the scripture reading. Pastor read some, some verse uh, some scripture reading. And all throughout the sermon, I'm not thinking about the sermon, I'm thinking about the scripture reading. Because that's what I needed at that point in time, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Holy Spirit moves in several different ways, and sometimes it's the hymn. We have these different elements of worship. We come to praise God and, and to encourage one another to exercise our giftings. And who knows what we'll come away with but we're supposed to come with eager hearts, with a joyful spirit, ready to learn, ready to um, submit to what God has to teach us that day. So there, there is a sense that our worship is a community project as we gather to exercise our spiritual gifts. And so the psalmist joy, he, he is he expresses joy over the prospect of worship and then over the, the setting of the city, of the place of worship. In, in verse 2, he says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And you see that he, he uses the plural pronouns that from the beginning, let us go to the house of the Lord. They said to me, our feet... It's all in a group. It's all in a company. It's all together. It's in fellowship with one another as they come to the place of worship. And the attitude is, we're actually here. We're here. And I wonder, you know, we can look back on our lives, and for most of us, we have been to several places, and, you know, maybe you have had those vacations or those trips where you have planned maybe all year or a few months and this was 
supposed to be a great time and maybe a place where you've never been to, to before, a city, a country, a state, uh, maybe some national park where there's some natural wonder that you always wanted to see. And then when you get there, there's that sense where you just have to stop and take a step back and say, we're here. I've been planning this for months. We've um, gone through several steps of um, setting aside money, of um, planning out how much it'll cost to get here, of all the things of travel and accommodations and food and lodging, and we're here. We're actually here. And there's something about when he says, within your gates, O Jerusalem, and and for most of us, we think of perhaps an ancient city like a castle or whatever where there's, you know, maybe one big gate. And, and certainly that was true and, and there was some truth to it about Jerusalem. But uh, in the ancient Near East and in cities like Jerusalem, the gates, it wasn't just a single gate, but it was more of a, a corridor, a big corridor where there there could have been several gates, one after the other. But the way uh, Jerusalem and many of the cities in Israel were built, and around the ancient Near East, they, they said gates, plural. And, and you would go through the first gate, and, and there may be other gates, but it would be like a long corridor, and, and, and there would be these um, vestibules on the sides where uh, people would sell stuff, where they'd keep their animals, where there would be, as you read in several um, passages in the Bible, the elders of the city sat in the gates and they did business and business was done and there was a marketplace and there was a gathering and so it was a buzz of activity. It, it wasn't as if you, you just go through one gate. It, it was... It was a whole corridor as you walk through and you see all this activity going on, kind of like a marketplace. And so there was a, a sense of, of something's happening here. A lot's happening here. People are interacting with one another, and especially during the, the feast times, because that, that would also be a meeting place that, that you, you would uh, maybe arrange with the family members to meet at the gates, to meet within the gates. And, and they, even if you did not arrange to meet there, you, chances are you would run into people there. And so here's this place. It, it, it's not just that they have arrived, but there's all this activity going on, and, and especially during this time of, of one of the feasts that there is excitement, there's reunion, um, perhaps a, a harvest had, had, had just been uh, been gathered in as like the, the feast of, of first fruits. And there was buying and selling going on. There was joy. There was hope. There was a sense of uh, prosperity as things were bought and sold. And so this contributed to this worship experience. That it wasn't just his joy, but it was the joy of his friends who came to um, get him to go worship. And then it was the joy of the people in the gates. So 
this, there's joy upon joy upon joy, and it, it's building as they enter into the city to, to go into the center of the city, to go make their way towards the tabernacle, towards the place of worship, and to join together in their praise to God. And so, first, the first expression we see is the psalmist's joy. And then, second, we see the psalmist's praise. The psalmist's praise, or David's praise, in verses 3 to 5. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. We see his praise, and his praise for the city, for the place. And it, it may be kind of, um, I don't know, out, out of the ordinary or kind of strange for us to see um, someone praising a city. Sometimes you, you hear of um, friends or family members who... Uh, maybe they grew up in a certain city or maybe they moved to a certain city and they really enjoy that city and they praise that city and everything that's going on in that city, the industry, the entertainment, um, the, maybe the city's growing. We don't see it so much in, in, in America because our, our cities aren't that, we don't view them as that great. There is, there's not a lot of history in them. Maybe more so as you get closer to the East Coast, there's a little bit more history and the architecture is a little bit better. But more so for cities in Europe. I remember friends talking about Rome or Paris and just in glowing terms about the city and the architecture and the history and the cuisine and all these great things that happen in the city and take place and the history of the city. But it's even more so for Jerusalem. There, there's even more history in Jerusalem. And, and even, at the, even during this time, John Phillips, in his commentary exploring the Psalms, he says this, which I, I thought was really interesting about Jerusalem. He said this, We need to recall the importance of Jerusalem in the councils of God. There was never a city like it. Even today, draw a circle with a radius of about 900 miles and you will take in nearly all the, middle, all the Middle East. The circle will embrace Athens, Istanbul, Antioch, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Cairo, and Mecca. Much of Western civilization is the offshoot of what transpired in those ten cities. Some idea of the importance of Jerusalem to God can be gathered from the number of times he mentions it in the Bible. About 465 verses in the Old Testament and about 24 verses in the New Testament, 489 in all, speak of Jerusalem and its future. Many of the predictions have been fulfilled, but many more await fulfillment. The city itself is named more than 800 times in the Bible. There, there is something special about Jerusalem. It's not just the capital city. It's not just the place where the, the tabernacle was and where the temple would be built. There's something more there. 
there, there's, there's history there. This is where it, 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 we can go all the way back into Genesis and, and see this is where um, the first implication of Jerusalem comes from Melchizedek, as his, his name literally means uh, king of righteousness, and he was king of Salem, meaning Jerusalem. Jerusalem quite literally means a city of peace, Salem, Shalom, and Ir, or Jir, city, city of peace. This was where Melchizedek was king of. This is where um, Abraham uh, met him. This is where Abraham went up to uh, sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah where the Temple Mount is. So much history with this city, and, but we don't really see its history until uh, David and then Solomon and then later on when, when, when David takes it over. And, and here we see in verse 3, it says it's built as a city that is bound firmly together. Bound firmly together. And... and it's kind of hard to understand that unless you see the geography of Jerusalem. And even today, we don't really see how it's bound firmly together. But there, originally, there was this, this uh, say, more of a ridgeline um, that, that came out that was the center of Jerusalem. And then there was the, the, the mounts around it, the Mount of Olives on one side. And, uh, and then the, the other uh, mount that went up on the other side. And so Jerusalem is, in a sense, this, this small little hill surrounded by mountains, but then there's valleys in between originally. And so uh, originally the, the Jebusites built it and built on top of it, and, and it was a formidable structure because of just the way the terrain was and and in the area there that that terrain they um, occupied the one sole spring the source of water and so as David takes it over and, and you can turn there and read this in second Samuel chapter 5 and and we see this account of when David took over this city and and, and what was uh, told him there was a, a sense of because of the way it was built and its geography and its terrain, its uh, tactical advantage um, to invaders, that the Jebusites, in a sense, they, they taunted David as he come to take over this city. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, and verses 4 to 10, it gives this initial history of, of Jerusalem. It says this, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft 
to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. When David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built the city all around from the, the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And when the Jebusites were taunting him, saying, you'll not come in here. The blind and the lame, we'll put the blind and the lame on the walls, and your best soldiers will not be able to uh, take this city. Because it's built up on the, on the hill so that you come down from the, the higher mountains, and there's a valley, and the soldiers would have to come down, and by the time they come down, they're, they're almost in range of, of archers and stones or whatever, spears, whatever can be thrown at them, and then they would have to come up into Jerusalem. Well, um, it talks about the water shaft. And in that, in that spring, there was a shaft there was in the cave that was built, and, and David, it was somewhat known, and, and David, Jehu was, um, not Jehu, uh, Joab, um, he was the one that, that climbed up that shaft and, and killed some soldiers and, and then uh, opened up the gates and they took over that city. But nevertheless, that, that city, as David um, continued to fortify it and built it, it was built as a city that is uh, bound firmly together. It, it, it was a stronghold. And the tribes of Israel were told to go to this place to worship the place that, that God would choose to where he would make his name great, where he would set up his king, David, the place where uh, God told Abraham to go to sacrifice Isaac, place where Melchizedek came from. There was great history here, and, and the history would build. And eventually... David would bring the ark there and would set up the tabernacle. One commentator, he writes this, he says this, um, concerning that time when David took over the city, he says this, he says, The ark of the covenant had been at Kiriath-Jerim ever since it returned from Philistia. That's when the Philistines uh, took it and kept it at Ashdod uh, near the coast. And he goes on, he says, Counting the days of Samuel, Saul, and part of David's reign, the ark stayed at Kiriath-Jerim some 100 years. When David brought the ark to Jerusalem, he combined the religious and political centers of Israel, Israelite life into one place. And then David himself performed the combined roles of king and priest, putting on priestly garments and making sacrifices. And this is where David foreshadows Jesus as the priest king, the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. And he combines the religious and political centers into one place. And then from this point on, Jerusalem is it. Jerusalem is Israel's capital city, which the psalmist David praises Jerusalem because it's the capital. And, and, and then he praises it because it's the center of worship. We see the psalmist's praise, David's praise of Israel's capital and 
then Israel's center of worship, where all the people go, where God decreed them to go, to which the tribes go up three times a year, as he had decreed to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David, that, that this is where the, the law would be dispensed throughout the land where priests were taught, where they administered the, the, the sacrifices. This goes back to the law in Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. It says, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All these three feasts. And it's, it's not just where God decreed them to go, but where they would continue to go. Because they always looked to Jerusalem. And even in Isaiah's day, and this is interesting, in the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2, as Isaiah is pronouncing judgment on all the Israelites, and, and not just the Israelites, not just Judah, but all the nations around Israel because of their idolatry, because of their treachery, against God because of their rebellion. And yet, in the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, he prophesies a time when everything will be made right. In Isaiah 2 and verses 2 to 4, it says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And Isaiah is speaking of that time in when, when Jesus returns and he actually sits upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. That time when things are restored, not completely, but that, that time where he reigns for a thousand years on this earth and, uh, uh, and he restores the earth in a sense, not completely, but he reigns in righteousness in the millennial kingdom. And people will come, nations will come to Jerusalem, the, the Mount Zion. It will be the highest of mountains. I don't know if, if God's going to raise it up or lower every other mountain or both. But it will be the highest mountain. And Jerusalem will be that center of the whole world. It will be uh, the place where everyone wants to go, not just Israelites, not just believers. Everyone will go to Jerusalem. We'll see the, the beauty and the glory of Jerusalem, and, and not so much because of Jerusalem, but because of God, because of Christ. So we see David's praise, the psalmist's praise, 
of Israel's capital city, of Israel's center of worship, and ultimately of Israel's uh, seat of power. And to see this a little bit better, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 48. Psalm 48, and I I remember uh, one time in my life, um, I was in California and kind of needed a break and just figured I would get away and go to the Redwoods and uh, going through my devotions and sitting amongst the Redwoods in a state park and just reading this psalm and looking up at the great high Redwoods and, and just imagining the citadels, the, 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 the towers. In Psalm 48, it, it talks all about Zion, the city of our God, he, the, the, written by the sons of Korah, and they say this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God, forever and ever, He will guide us forever. And certainly when the psalmist, when the sons of Korah wrote this Psalm 48, that wasn't exactly true concerning Jerusalem. That was their hope. There was an eschatological hope, a a future hope that they would be sure, based on the promises of God, that that would be Jerusalem, that one day they would speak those words, that they would sing that song, that they would consider the beauty and the glory of Jerusalem. Not because of the stones so much, but because of God, because of His decrees, because He had set aside this capital, this city, where the throne of David would be. You know, you, you think of it, and um, I think of the in in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, and and there's there's that that um, that that city minus I think it's minus Tirith or or whatever that 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 white city that this big uh, capital, and and in a sense uh, as an allegory, I think Tolkien meant it to kind of be a glimpse of. Jerusalem and, and the whiteness and the greatness of this, this fortress and this castle and this city. Is, you can see it from far away and, and this great structure, these high walls, and there's a, a sense of glory with it. 
in the New Jerusalem, it's beyond our imagination. But, you know, as the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 48, and, he, and even here David in Psalm 122, they're, they're, they're not just looking at Jerusalem as it is, but as what they, they hope it will be, as what God um, intended it to be, as what it will be. Because God has placed his name there. And so, David, the psalmist, uh, we, he, he expresses his heartfelt joy and then his praise over the city. And then lastly, we see the psalmist's petition, his prayer in verses 6 to 9. He says, after exclaiming all these wonders about Jerusalem and, and about the the prospect of worship and going up to Jerusalem to worship and going into the house of the Lord and into the tabernacle and being amongst the people of God, then he breaks out into prayer, into petition. And he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Praise always um, bubbles over into prayer, into petition. And praise is a sense of prayer. And we, when we praise God, we are in a sense praying to God. But um, uh, more often than not, after our praise, we pray for uh, more praise or, or for more works of God or for um, peace and security. Uh, and, and, you know, you think of the, the church and, and especially after a wonderful Sunday or a wonderful time of worship and uh, though your heart is filled, you, you want more. And you want more for the church and more for the people of God. And you want to see God's name exalted high. And, you know, there's several times when, you know, I'm, walking about and, and uh, thinking about our culture. And, you know, we build great works um, in our culture. We build stadiums that house tens of thousands of fans, sports fans and, and uh, concert goers to come to events, to see these massive events with um, advertising and... and, and uh, merchandise and, and uh, food and all sorts of things in uh, sports arenas and, and uh, professional sports leagues. You see these uh, arenas that can fit um, maybe even upwards of 100,000, some of them. And I think that should be, you know, all this energy, all this excitement, it should be for God. It shouldn't be for something as uh, temporary and almost frivolous as uh, just a sports game. And sure, sports are great, and I played many sports, and, and there's a lot of fun, and, and you can go to a sports arena, but you know, there's a sense that all this, um, this money and resources and uh, shouldn't be going to sports. It should be going to the praise of God. And one day it will. And there's a sense that, 
that the psalmist, has, uh, that David, he prays for this, for the peace of Jerusalem, for this gathering that all the people would gather, that there would be peace and security so that they could gather, that there would be peace within their walls, within the walls of Jerusalem and security within your towers for my brothers and companions' sake, for the sake of the people of God, so that worship would, uh, would abound. And uh, it's interesting as we think of this, this prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. And, and sometimes you can see um, that phrase, uh, the, the phrase uh, in this verse 6, um, uh, all around on, on uh, you know, stones or plaques or certain uh, um, paraphernalia. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then we think of the history of Jerusalem. And the history of Jerusalem is marked by warfare and conflict. It's, it's not marked by peace. It, it, there's irony that the city of peace is known more for conflict and war and turmoil than it is for peace. In his book, Jerusalem Besieged, um, Eric Klein, he writes this. He says, there have been at least 118 separate conflicts in and for Jerusalem during the past four millennia. Conflicts which range from local religious struggles to strategic military campaigns, which embraced everything in between. Jerusalem has been destroyed completely at least twice, besieged 23 times, attacked an additional 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, been the scene of 20 revolts and innumerable riots, had at least five separate periods of violent terrorist attacks during the past century, and has only changed hands completely peacefully twice in the past 4,000 years. More than any other city in the world, Jerusalem is known for conflict. It's known for strife. E e even now, there's you know the three major religions of Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam vie for control of Jerusalem. Israel itself doesn't have complete control over Jerusalem. It's divided up. It's divided up into sections. And so there is a, a great need for peace in Jerusalem. Ever since its inception, ever since David's sees the city and, and, and uh, to now and, and into the future until Christ returns. There is a need for peace in Jerusalem. And not, not just peace for the sake of peace, but peace for the sake of worship. For the sake of the freedom to gather, the freedom to come and worship, for the sake of God's glory. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, if we understand biblical prophecy correctly, there can be no peace in Jerusalem or on earth until the Prince of Peace reigns on David's throne. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're actually praying, thy kingdom come, and even so, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22. He goes on to say, Jesus wept over the city because its residents were ignorant of the peace God had for them in Luke 19 and had rejected their own Messiah. 
Jesus comes right before Passion Week as he comes on the, the, the colt, on the fowl of a donkey, and he comes as that triumphant king, uh, fulfilling prophecy in many ways, and weeps and says, if you had known the things which make for peace, how long I, would I have gathered you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, and yet you would not have it. You would not have peace, Jerusalem. But yet we still pray for peace, and we pray for peace as the psalmist prays for peace, as David prays for peace, for peace and security for the people. In verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. And then for the house of the Lord, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but the, the greater implication and application is, is we pray for the people of God, for the gathering of God, for the church of God. Pray for the peace of the church, peace in this world, that we may gather freely to worship our God. Old Testament scholar Willem Van Gemeren, he says this concerning uh, these terms that we see here peace and security and prosperity, peace, uh, shalom, and the security and the prosperity, the prosperity, tov, goodness. He says this, the peace, security, and prosperity will benefit all the people of God as it was in the days of David. It is a prayer for those who love Jerusalem, for my brothers and my friends, in his reflective prayer on the peace of Jerusalem, the psalmist mentions her walls and citadels as well as the house of the Lord. In these references, he combines the civil, political, and religious significance of Jerusalem. Thus, the present experience of joy in going up to the house of the Lord, the manner in which Jerusalem is closely compacted together, the mixing together of all of the tribes and the establishment of the thrones for judgment, and Jerusalem will find their symmetry in the prayer for Jerusalem's peace. And this will all come together in the end when the Prince of Peace comes. And he establishes peace as the prophet, priest, and king. That it's not just the religious peace and the peace of gathering for worship, but it's the civil peace of ruling and reigning and righteousness, that political peace of, of governing uh, well in his administration. You know, we all, we all think of the reign of Jesus and hope for his coming and pray for his coming and, and look forward to his coming. And we will see him as he is and worship him. And, um, but sometimes we don't think of the little things. You know, and... and in Messiah's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, there's not going to be potholes. You know, there's not going to be um, administrative red tape. There's not going to be a, a blundering bureaucracy of government. Things will work right. Yes, we will worship him and we will rejoice over him, but even in the smallest details of government and life, things will be right down to the smallest detail. 
It will all be made new. And we will be glad. We will rejoice when they say, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to Jerusalem. Let us go to Mount Zion. In uh, 1800, Timothy Dwight, who was a grandson of Jonathan Edwards, he was also a pastor and a professor and president of Yale, he wrote this hymn, which is one of my favorite hymns, and I, I believe that this hymn expresses the thoughts of the psalmist well in Psalm 122, and he wrote this hymn, and it says, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer save with his own precious, precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. They will end when he comes and he makes all things new and he establishes his kingdom. Unfortunately, though, we, we don't often see what Timothy Dwight saw in writing about the church because too often we look at what the church is not rather than looking at what God is doing in the church. That he is conforming the church and each individual member of the church into the image of his son and he is making us one. We need to look at what God will do in the end with his church. This reminds me of the end, what Jerusalem will be, and what the church will be is, is John is given this vision of the new Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. In Revelation 21, in verse 9, he says this, he says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's almost like a gift of God from heaven to earth for the people of God, a, a dwelling place. The Apostle John then goes on to describe the details of the new Jerusalem, which the angel showed him in the vision. And then in Revelation 22, in verse 3 to 5, he says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so when we come to church, when we gather to worship, yes, we bring baggage, we bring sin, we bring uh, fears and anxieties and worries and trials and challenges. Our feet are dirty from walking amongst this sin-cursed world and our feet need to be washed and we need to confess our sins. But we come to worship God in a church that has its flaws. And we come to worship 
not because of what is now, but what will be and what God is doing in us now and what he will um, do in us in the end, what he will conform us to be the image of Christ and what Christ will do in the end and, and where we will be in the end. Our hope is not here, but it's in heaven. And so as we come and we consider that great hope, the hope of the end times, we can say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because though the church isn't what it should be and we aren't what we should be, we can praise God that we aren't what we were. And that one day we will be um, made perfect, made complete, and we will gather free from sin and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. And so we come and we gather and we worship with that hope in mind, the hope of heaven, the hope of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the reminder that you have made a place place for us to gather and dwell at places yet to come. But now we have a place as we gather together. You have indwelled us. And as we gather, we um, see your work within us and through us. We gather to encourage one another to love one another, to serve one another. And we gather in hope that you will return and you will make all things new. So Lord, help us to live in light of that hope. Not because of our current circumstances, but because of what you will do in the end. And until that time comes, help us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.